0: Welcome to the Rejected Religion Podcast. I'm Stephanie Shea, and today you're going to hear my first interview for the podcast with my dear friend and colleague, Thomas von Breda. Thomas and I are longtime friends, having studied together at the University of Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Thomas is from Belgium and holds a research master uh, with a distinction of cum laude, in Religious Studies and he uh, holds a specialization in Western Esotericism. Today he'll be sharing his research into Aleister Crowley. Now Crowley is a pretty big name in the field of Western Esotericism, so I guess it's no surprise that this episode had to be separated into two parts. Apologies for some brief audio quality issues and the odd background noise here and there. This interview was recorded online due to the pandemic, and due to this, you'll hear a doorbell and a cell phone and all of those things that just randomly seem to happen at the worst moment when you're trying to work from home. In this part of the interview, uh, Thomas and I will be discussing Crowley's background, his start, In the magical group known as the Golden Dawn, the concept of initiation, and Crowley's own magical system called Thelema. Now, I I noticed that during the interview, I say Thelema a lot, differently than than Thomas. uh, And I suppose there's a kind of unconscious Crowly crowly thing going on uh, but I would say that Thomas's pr- pronunciation is the correct one and therefore in the future I'll do my best to say the Lema too. I hope you enjoy part one. Welcome Thomas to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here today.
1: Thank you It's an honor to be invited
0: Well. I'm really, really happy to have you here today to talk about Alistair Crowley and his system called Thelema. Uh, Much of your research has focused on Crowley and the concept of initiation. And in my first episode uh, on the podcast, I mentioned the terms esoteric and occult that refer to special knowledge for an inner circle and how this is concealed from the general public. And I talked a little bit about initiation into secret societies. And while we can't discuss everything about Crowley today, I'd like to start out for those who may be unfamiliar or maybe have only heard random things about him uh, with a little bit of uh, background about Crowley, a little bio about him. So if you could just briefly um, talk about his childhood, where he grew up, his family, up until maybe around the time that he goes to university and he kind of starts to venture out as more of an adult. Uh, If we can start there, then we can lay a little bit of a foundation.
1: Okay, nice. Take it away. Uh, Start with the innocent Crowley child. (laughs) Well, Crowley was actually not born Alistair Crowley. This is something I don't think many people know. He was actually born um, named Edward Alexander Crowley after Crowley's father, who was named Edward. And Alexander comes from a friend of his father's. And Crowley wouldn't change that name until he became an adult. So that's really interesting. Maybe I can explain later why. Um, But Crowley was born the 12th of October, 1875, in Warwickshire, England, into a very religious household. Maybe this is also a little bit surprising for listeners. Um, Very Christian family. Mm -hmm. Uh, His father had actually converted during his lifetime to a Christian group called the Exclusive Brethren, which was uh, a faction of the evangelical Christian um, Plymouth Brethren. Basically, this means that his father was what we would now call a Christian fundamentalist, you know, to make it a little easier to understand. So um, this was a philosophy centered on the Bible as the sole authority on spirituality, um, very literal interpretations very little room for um, an emphasis on maybe religious experience or having a personal relationship with god that wasn't so connected to the doctrines of the bible uh, this is particularly interesting because his father actually came from a quaker's background which is a christian movement which did emphasize religious okay. experience and finding god within so interestingly enough I think this would be a view that the adult Crowley would have maybe appreciated later in life, but this is not how he grew up. Um, He grew up in a very strictly Christian household. Um, You know, they had Bible readings every single day. Um, The Bible was basically his life. That was the context he grew up in. Uh, So this is incredibly important as all scholars agree upon. Um, This is the way a young Crowley started to think about religion and with with his later reputation as kind of, you know, Satanist, which, you know, we'll discuss that that's, it's not as simple as that, but Mm -hmm. you know, that really needs to be understood against the background of his Christian upbringing. Right. Still Crowley seems to have been a happy child. Um, he was of course able to enjoy his family's wealthy status, serving staff, private tutors. He went to boarding school, um, living for a few years in in Warwickshire Leamington Spa um, where he was born and then he moved to the London area various homes in and around London Um, what else can I say that could be interesting Curley was a very intellectual child he did very well in school often being you know top of his class made friends easily was interested in poetry so you know maybe for people who are looking for like the clear signs that Crowley <laughs> was going to be this monster of later life. No, he was just a fairly happy child doing really well, full of promise. What really changed this sort of happier period is when Crowley's father died from bone disease in 1887. Crowley was around 12, um, leaving one third of his estate to Crowley. So suddenly, um, Crowley had around $2 million ready for him, waiting for him when he became an adult. And this is when he starts to show these symptoms, as I guess we can call them. This is where the sort of rebellious, more transgressive Crowley starts to emerge um, because he really had modeled himself after his father. This Mm -hmm. was his his constant, and this is what um, suddenly fell away and... So right. That and must have been a very marking period for his
0: Certainly. And how old evolution. was he again when this happened?
1: He was he he must have been like 12 or 13. I don't know okay. exactly the date his father died, but very very young. This is when he sort of starts acting out at school. He starts growing more and more frustrated with the religion of his father or at least how it was organized. He doesn't necessarily show um a hatred toward Christianity per se, but more about the um, very uh, biblical, literal interpretation that he had known. And he took issue with one particular Christian concept, which was sin. So in this age, he seems to sort of want to revel in having all of these experiences that his father would have absolutely disapproved of. So um, this meant Um, and of course I'm talking about him as a more developed teenager now, Mm -hmm. not as a 12-year-old, started having sex, premarital sex, of course, also with prostitutes, so that's going to be a recurring thing in Crowley's life, a lot of drinking, smoking. He seems to have looked for ways to embody what the many people he had known had thought of as evil. But at the same time, I want to really emphasize that he wasn't some crazy person. He, he remained a great student. He remained passionate about poetry, mountain climbing, chess games. So I don't think this rebellious phase needs to be exaggerated necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, he was still, outwardly speaking, you know, a very respectable um, young man who did well, again, showed a lot of promise for the future. But the most important formative phase of his life, and you already sort of hinted at it, was when he entered Trinity College, which was a college of the University of Cambridge. This is when he had no personal supervision anymore from his Christian fundamentalist tutors. He was basically free to do whatever for the first time in his life with all of the money that his dad left him, which had now become available since he had come of age. And this is, interestingly, the moment he decides to change his name uh, to Alistair, which is the Gaelic form of Alexander. And it was inspired by Crowley's interest in the Celtic revival at this time. I see. Um, Yeah. I don't know if you want to hear more about his university years. Um, Um,
0: Well, actually I wanted to ask just briefly, uh, did his family know that he had kind of taken on these different um, ideas and was he, was he open with his family about that, that he was like, Rebelling against his uh, Christian upbringing, did they know about this, or was this something he kept hidden from them?
1: He was definitely playing the part a little bit. He was mm. being a, a you know a good boy with with his okay. tutors and stuff. He was a little bit. He, he had changed a little bit, and this is the. And we'll talk about this later. Probably, this is when his mother starts. You know, yeah. entering oh, okay. a phase in her understanding of her son, where you know she's kind of calling him like, yeah, like he's becoming more perverted, more mm. evil in, in, in a Christian sense. Uh, but this was mostly, I think, a you know something that happened in private, in his own in his own mind.
0: Okay,
1: uh, and that's why when he's not under all of this supervision, under all of this family control, that he really starts to emerge as this. Aleister Crowley character that we know at Cambridge this is really when all of that started but he had a few funny incidents he like blew up stuff in his in in the garden and stuff like he had those little typical incidents that in hindsight could predict what would happen during his adult years I guess yeah
0: okay all right well that's that's a nice little uh uh backgrounds we have a little bit of a foundation let's take another step then into this foundation and you mentioned that he is in cambridge so he is what age now when he goes this is when he was around 20 20 okay so at this time um my memory is always kind of fuzzy about (laughs) about stuff with crowley i'm not an expert in crowley i kind of know the the general um bones, the skeleton of, uh, of Crowley's life. But when he, uh, if I remember correctly, when he went to university, um, he started to become quite interested in what we would now call occult matters. And he started to, um, become very interested in learning more about that. So, mm-hmm. um, but before he became, um, the leader of the group called Thelema, he had interactions with other people that led him to that, I'm uh, of course. Um, so what I'd like to do right now uh, is talk a little bit about these, uh, these people and the groups that Crowley uh, was involved in. Uh, his so-called entrance into the occult. Um, and I have two questions uh, that you if you would expand upon and that will then lay our uh our whole foundation of uh of Crowley um so the first question is can you talk a little bit about the history of these uh groups that Crowley was involved in how he found out about them uh etc and whether or not we could consider these groups to be secret societies as they are now understood as we, you know, colloquially talk about them. And did these groups use those terms or the term secret society themselves? And then the second question is, can you talk about the concept of initiation as it refers to these groups and why that was considered important? Take it okay, away. Hey,
1: great questions. Thank you. Um, to tackle the first question, there is only really one group he sought admission to, and that is the legendary Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn.
0: Okay.
1: So I don't know how many people have heard about that. But it's basically the most important esoteric society that had a massive impact. As soon as it started, but especially the second half of the 20th century, when much of its materials were made public, because, you know, like you sort of hinted at, Mm -hmm. it was a bit of a secret society, but I'll get to that later.
0: Okay.
1: But that was really the one where um, Crowley believed he could find all of the answers to his spiritual questions. So we might get to that a little later about what drove Crowley to these groups. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the Golden Dawn, founded in 1887 sort of combining an initiatory system based on Freemasonry with so-called esoteric philosophy, so a modernized study of the occult sciences that had flourished, for example, during the Renaissance, the early modern period, and until a schism ripped it apart around the turn of the century. So it actually didn't exist for very long, but Crowley sort of jumped in there in the Golden Age of the Golden Dawn. And, yeah, I'm saying it's the only relevant group to point out because there is only one other group he mentions in this pre thelemic period. And, um, but, yeah, I don't really know if it's worth mentioning. This is after he left the Golden Dawn. This is in Mexico City around 1900 uh, when he tried to become a Freemason. That never really worked out, but he did claim to be initiated into Freemasonry okay. um, by a man called Don Jesus, after which he co-founded a new Masonic order called the Lamp of the Invisible Light. But that sort of went nowhere. So mm-hmm. I guess it's relevant to point out because it illustrates how much of Crowley's hopes were pointed towards um, this Golden Dawn. He really believed this was the only order that could possibly satisfy his religious thirst. Okay. So he didn't even really look for a second option. So maybe that's relevant to point out.
0: Okay, so I think you alluded, it, alluded to it just earlier uh what was what were the people in the golden dawn doing that he was so interested in what what kind of practices did they uh do
1: right (laughs) what were they doing well i it's kind of a difficult question to answer because when he first became a member he wasn't really doing much of anything the Golden Dawn was very sort of conservative about whether or not their members could actually practice anything that was more reserved for inner order initiates. So there mm. was sort of this public order everyone more or less could gain admission to, but then there was also a secret inner order, and that's where magic was actually being practiced.
0: Okay, so let's let's pause right here. So the, the outer yes. order, the exoteric uh, yes. order what were those people uh, told that that was all about what kind of i mean like with freemasonry for example that the mm-hmm. things that you hear uh just in general that they they work with charities they you know help the sick they help the poor they you know that type of thing they they try to help people was that the same right. type of thing with the golden dawn where they were trying to present themselves as being a charitable group or was this something different? Was it more individ- individualistic that people were trying to learn more about spiritual topics to enrich their lives or
1: yes, you, you fill in the blank? <laughs> yeah. You tell me. That's a great question. Um, indeed, very much more individually based. Basically a general person who would seek admission to the golden dawn would believe that there are some kind of hidden forces in our universe in nature in ourselves probably interlinked Mm -hmm. these forces that can be awakened controlled for certain spiritual purposes and what the golden dawn offered sort of their product as it were was initiation a kind of controlled guided system through which a person could Find those forces awaken those forces within oneself okay. and self-transform so it was very much based on trying to experience this self-transformation for a spiritual purpose and what happened in this outer order is you were given sort of a theoretical background um, A lot of preliminary training, sort of the basics of a lot of different spiritual systems like astrology, tarot, um, maybe a little simple meditation here and there, but nothing really advanced. Basically, the magical language is what they would call it, which you would use in all of the advanced rituals, which were to be given out at a later date. But Crowley basically knew all of this already from his personal studies. He He didn't come into the order as a newbie he already wanted into that inner order from day one. So he raced through all of the initiatory grades in that outer order to get to that point where he could actually learn something he wasn't able to get from the books he had already read mm. years prior.
0: Okay. So that so took that- him, <laughs> That took him what, um, a couple of months? And then he was through everything?
1: Yeah, a, a little over a year. Okay. Yeah.
0: 'Cause this was the, usually to, to a very, the, very long process, right? Oh For, yes.
1: Okay. It, well it's it's not it's never really about being the fastest, but yeah. Usually you read mentions like at least a year to pass from grade to grade. And Crowley already finished like three to four grades within
0: within you the know, year.
1: twelve months. So that was really impressive, but probably also caused a lot of worry and a lot of personal rubbings that Maybe Crowley some... was a little bit too, okay. he wanted it too much. And that is probably the case too. Yeah.
0: So that created some tensions within the group.
1: Yes. Okay. Cause Crowley's goal was not granted. He didn't get into the inner order in the way he wanted. Okay. Cause there were a lot of people who thought he's not going in. He's not balanced. His personality is impure. There were a lot of, rumors and allegations about possible bisexuality which in that time was a big no-no so yeah he did not get that official welcome that he wanted
0: all right so i think i interrupted you before you were just on the verge of going on with the with the rest of your answer so please
1: it was yeah it was probably about the second question um initiation concept of initiation in these groups and whether or not this qualifies as a secret, um, whether or not this qualifies the Golden Dawn to be a secret society, I don't think the Golden Dawn ever described itself as a secret society. Even though there were aspects of secrecy, absolutely, you were not supposed to divulge any identities of members. Um, so that was completely secret. You were not supposed to release any of the material you were given. Whether you know those were physical documents. Um, the rituals that happened, basically everything that happened within the Order was secret. I think the reason I am kind of uncomfortable using the term secret society is because that sort of evokes to me an atmosphere of a society trying to influence the world or something in some kind of twisted way. And um, that's really not what they were doing. They really believed in a very high training system for people who were just genuinely interested in spiritual self-transformation. And that this training was simply dangerous for people who were maybe not interested at all and were just interested in trying a certain magic ritual for fun. There's Mm -hmm. lots of these warnings that you find in occultist writings that occultism is not for the faint-hearted. You can't just let anyone you know, play their hand at these rituals, or you know they might actually go insane, or they might hurt themselves, hurt other people. So I think a lot of that secrecy, other than maybe being a you know a stylistic choice, was also because this material was maybe a little bit untrustworthy with the wrong person.
0: Okay, so was this also kind of an a uh, uh, socio economic elitist kind of thinking, or were there just people from all walks of life in the OTO? Or was it more wealthy individuals? Maybe from I the... think you mean
1: the Golden Dawn. Yeah, did I say yes? You said OCO, which you know is thematically <laughs> <Sorry> relevant. But... <laughs> about <that.
0: laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry no, about that. No, I meant
1: the Golden Dawn. From, yes, absolutely. People from all walks of life, um, predominantly middle class, but definitely not. Um, I mean, Crowley was actually stood out because he had received a formal education. And that sort of made him feel a little bit uncomfortable because he knew a lot more about contemporary science, about intellectual culture. So he didn't like that. But that kind of shows that there wasn't really any political, socioeconomic elitism going on. It was more about, are you able to handle this stuff? Are you willing to put in the work? Mm -hmm. And are you willing to purify your mind, purify your body, purify your intention, It's more about that inner strength, that inner purity that was far more important than if you were able to buy your way through the initiation scheme or or, or whatever. Okay, Technical skill was incredibly important, as was hard work.
0: So Crowley went through all this hard work, and then he was not initiated. And at a certain point, he became disillusioned with these people at the Golden Dawn. Is that correct? Would that be a correct statement yes he was very very unhappy with us i take it
1: yeah i do think it's important to note that he claims he was initiated nevertheless by the leader of that order um, samuel mcgregor mathers Mm -hmm. who had founded the order with uh, two other gents but this was a private thing that happened in paris and no one really knows what he did but you know for crowley this was an official initiation but yeah, there's very little details about this. But, but it, and it was also never officially recognized okay, by right, the, okay. the other operating temples. So it's yeah. kind of a... Yeah, it's not the big regal celebration Crowley wanted it to be. So that left mm-hmm. him basically disappointed. And the real disillusionment came even later when McGregor Mathers, this figure he had looked up to as this grand mage, was, according to him kind of exposed for being a fraud. You know, the whole premise of the Golden Dawn was that the Order was in contact with these superhuman beings, somewhat related to the divine. Their identities were always shrouded in mystery, but that there were these legitimate spiritual contacts that guided the whole initiatory process. And it's, you know, it's too long of a story to mention here, but basically Crowley became convinced, as, you know, were many other people, that there were no such spiritual contacts and that even though they may exist somewhere, they didn't exist in the golden dawn and Mathers had that just sort of faked this connection and that it made the whole order system illegitimate and um, yeah, that it was fit for destruction. So order of the golden dawn did dismantle completely. And I think that for Crowley was a massive disillusionment because as I said before, his, all of his hopes and dreams of, of finding answers were invested in this one group. And to suddenly find out that they were just humans who had played a big trick on him, so to speak, that must have been a huge blow to him. Absolutely.
0: Right. Okay. So at this point in the narrative, we are uh, at the point where Crowley claims he was initiated Yes. Uh, now my timeline is not as precise as yours. So I'm a little bit fuzzy here. So That's there's, okay. there's a, a period though of, of time that, uh, Crowley of course is, you know, not only just doing magical works, but he's also, he has a private life and he gets married. Yes. So yes. was this after he was, uh, quote unquote initiated into the Golden Dawn that he was married, or was this all happening at the same time?
1: No. Um he in fact distinguishes this post-Golden Dawn period himself in his autobiography. Mm -hmm. Um he's still practicing magic here and there and and it's it's a very interesting passage in his autobiography um expresses this idea that he was still convinced that magic was working and he was still got good results. But somehow it didn't satisfy him. He okay. wasn't able to pick up those those mystical intents that he had entertained for so long. He writes, it didn't satisfy my religious thirst. So that is interesting. And mm. I'll probably get back to that later okay. about what those religious thirsts were. But yeah, he has this period in his life where he is basically just surrendering to a more domestic material life of marriage of traveling and he like i say he does some magic here and there but it's no longer a guiding light in his life and Mm. he admits that um of course he's writing about this in retrospect so he considers this to be more of a not necessarily a dark period of but a period of spiritual malaise where he kind of lost his motivation but it must have been a period of you know sort of simple contentment compared to what came afterwards right but yeah, there were a couple of years yeah, that weren't as spectacular as the years that would follow, absolutely.
0: Okay, so he gets married, he and he's on his honeymoon, and something quite major happens to him. So he's going along in his life and he's all content and domestic, as you said. And then he's <laughs> he's in Egypt and then this major thing happens. What what was that that happened?
1: Well, <laughs> um, this is basically the.
0: This is the big. This thing. is where,
1: yeah. This is usually if you have to describe Crowley in one sentence, mm-hmm. this automatically comes up. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this this is February 1904, and I guess the most important thing to mention here is that his wife Rose is not a practicing occultist. She's not a practicing magician or anything. She doesn't really know anything about magic other than maybe some of the magical tricks or something that Crowley um, Mm. performed you know he mentions a couple of these but according to Crowley Rose started suddenly exhibiting some strange behaviors entering trance-like states and speaking these weird cryptic messages like they are waiting for you in a strange voice And Crowley in the beginning thinks, you know, she's just going nuts. You know, she's just having this weird fit. But then she has these mentions of words and terms that have magical significance for Crowley. So he's startled by this fact because, as I said, she's not supposed to know any of this stuff. Mm. So he claims to have tested her in a lot of ways to make sure that she wasn't going crazy, that she might in fact be communicating with a spiritual entity, which for Crowley was a possibility. You know, he he, he believed that this could happen. Right. He was a scientific-minded person, but for him, this kind of option was included in his worldview. So he, he wasn't shocked that this could happen, but he wanted to make sure it was really happening. So there's a lot of um, difficult tests that actually look kind of impressive if you read them. And the end result was that Crowley was convinced, okay, she is communicating with something. I don't know what it is. But, yeah, so they just kept track on it. And um, in April, um, yeah, I, I'm skipping this big episode of the of Revealing, but that's a little bit too complicated. Basically, there's this whole series of events that is, is basically this big theatrical introduction to the main event, which happens in April April 8th, uh, where Crowley hears a disembodied voice himself proclaiming to be a messenger of Horus, Egyptian god Horus, announcing the dictation of a book to be called the Book of the Law, and Crowley wrote it down as he heard it. So this all happened um, in one take, as it were. And you know, you can, there are scans of the manuscript. So if people are interested, you can easily find them online. It's very cool to see because you know, you know. Of course, we can't know for sure if they're authentic, but they are written. Just like they are, they aren't corrected. There are no um, stops. It's all in one style. So if it happens as Crowley described, it happened. It's pretty spectacular. So it's this, it's it's a small book. It's not a bible, but it's 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 a very interesting, very poetic book. Very at first sight unfamiliar. If you compare it to Crowley's writing style, there have been later analysis that have shown that there is a bit of Crowley in there if you look closely. But for Crowley, as he claims, this was an entirely foreign piece of work, an entirely foreign philosophy that was expounded in it. But what is most important is that the basic message of the book was that there was a new age that was coming, a new moral law that was coming, and that Crowley was to be the prophet of this new age And that this law and everything that had to do with it was to be called philema, which is Greek for will. And yes, that disembodied voice faded away and Crowley was just sort of like, okay, this happened, quite unsure of what happened. You know, he didn't have this massive revelation of, wow, I'm the prophet of a new age. In the the beginning, he was quite startled, didn't really know what to make of it. He was also kind of horrified by some more violent sections of the book, which can be found more towards the end, where he felt like this isn't isn't what I stand for. This is completely foreign to me. So he sent a few copies to some colleagues, but that was kind of it. He didn't really think much of it. It was only later um, that he really became identified with this role as the prophet of a new aeon
0: did he but have to still, have maybe some time to let it all sink in was that the reason why he just kind of said yeah this is there's this a lot is of crazy but okay i'm just gonna lay, leave it be for a while
1: there's a lot of theories about that i think that's the most common sense reason to choose uh personally i think crowley had some Absolutely amazing for him, spiritual experiences after 1904. And I think these changed his perspective on 1904 oh. more than it just sort of happened automatically as time went by. I see. Um, his further spiritual experiences kind of confirmed what this messenger had right. been saying in 1904 for him.
0: I see. And did he ever get a name of the messenger? The disembodied? <laughs> Spirit? Yes. What was the name? This name,
1: name was Awas. Okay. So that's A-I-W-A-S-S. Okay. Um, yeah, that name you can find frequently. Later on, he even claimed it to be his holy guardian angel. So, um, yeah, this cosmic force kind of angel deity type being, mm. which um, was a prophet for the gods. It's always very confusing what exactly Crowley means with these terms, but he did seemed to come to believe that he was part of this divine plan for humanity and that this new age was really going to benefit humankind at large
0: so this was a uh, can we call this a religion what he's talking about
1: really interesting question um i've called it a religion in in many of my papers Mm -hmm. And every time I do it, I'm kind of like, it it seems to make sense, but it's not quite right. Right. And the reason it's not uh, not quite right is because um, Crowley didn't really like religion. So it's it's kind of this weird tension where it looks like a religion, but it's also so much more. And I think if you piece together Crowley's writings, as I have, uh, especially um, the way he describes it in his autobiography, the conclusion for me, and this is my personal opinion, seems to be that he wanted Thalema to be able to function as a religion and satisfy all religious seekers. But at the same time, he also wanted to satisfy everyone else. He also wanted scientists to be attracted to his conclusions. He wanted
0: right.
1: general non-believers to be convinced. He wanted occultists to to recognize parts of their own philosophy. in it. he kind of wanted it to be this master key that would satisfy everyone's urges all at the same time this is this is what he says proves that it is such a supreme system because it is able to satisfy literally everyone in their personal quest for truth whatever form that may take so i think we can consider it to be a religion because according to crowley it's himself it matches the criteria it has a holy text It has a divine intervention, it has a prophet, it has an ethical code, but then it's also a philosophy, it's also a magical system. According to Crowley, it's also a scientific thesis, almost you could say. So it's a lot more than that, and that is why, of course, for Crowley, it beats any other religion that's out Mm. there.
0: Okay, so he didn't use the word religion himself, or did he? Sometimes. He, if it suited the situation, yes. perhaps. Okay.
1: He did sometimes, if he wanted to compare Thelema to other religious right. traditions or himself to other religious prophets, um, in, in very strange, fascinating ways. So in that sense, he, he does seem to think that he is just one more religious prophet. But yeah, he seems to be switching styles, switching roles. Sometimes he mm. only wants to come across as a scientist. Sometimes he only wants to come across as a magician. But then you clearly do have these passages where he wants to come across as a religious prophet. Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. Um, so we talked a little bit about how this system, I guess you could say, how this is you, you know different from other practices or other systems uh uh that had already been established but um and you said this was a a moral um kind of manifesto what the what this uh book was and what is the text called
1: the the reveal text yes the book of the law the book of the law Okay, of, so of the law.
0: The law. Oh, pardon <laughs> yeah. me. The law. So, okay, so this law was uh, something new that people hadn't heard of before? Is is that how he was bringing this to the to the public? I mean, how was this different? How was this going to save people? That all the other things that people hadn't, you know, or had already been exposed to, what it just wasn't cutting it how was this going to save everybody
1: right um oh i can answer that question in like 10 different ways but um (laughs) i'm gonna choose one okay (laughs) well first of all i guess i have to explain what crowley believed was going to save everyone before i can explain why he thought it was the best way okay um he does use completely new terminology. Um, this idea of will in connection with magic isn't isn't really original, but um, the main concept here is the true will. And that is a concept Crowley did invent, so to speak. He believed that every individual possessed a true will. And this in no way was connected to the whimsies of the body or the mind um, from which the individual actually has to be freed, that was, that was his conviction, through a rigorous system of magical practice, um, The will, the true will is a kind of force in one's soul which is always in complete harmony with the rest of the universe. So that, what follows, if everyone were to live according to their true will, there would be absolutely no conflict anywhere in the world. So it's this very utopian vision. And that is, of course, because the realm in which this true will is supposedly living is always described in language relating to the divine. So it is not something that we can find in this material plane. It is something that the individual has to work hard for and which involves a lot of spiritual states of consciousness that are elevated and there's a lot of things one has to go through before one can get to that true will so in that sense as utopian and easy as it sounds it isn't really something everyone can manage so as much as he tries to present it as a system for everyone he in some passages clearly understands that it is really going to be for the very few
0: because it's hard because it
1: Absolutely. Okay. It should basically command your entire life. Right. Now, there yes. is a letter to one of his students where he says, you know, everything you do has to be connected in some way to your magical goal, which in the end is to find your true will and live according to it. So just get any random job. And every second after that job has to be in some way Related to this spiritual mission. And he even had like special rituals for, for mealtimes. And you had to work, you know, I mean, adore, I was going to say worship, but I think adore is a better word, adore the sun four times a day. And he really wanted this to not be a hobby. This is typically Crowley. You have to surrender everything you have, everything you own, as he did. Of course, he also didn't work a day in his life because he had a fancy <laughs> <was well>
0: uh, <laughs> didn't have he had a fancy
1: inheritance. Um, <laughs> but Crowley, of course, would say, but that's that is how I was able to prove that this is the way to go, because I was able to do it in a couple of years. I became enlightened in a couple of years because I gave it my all. Hmm. So, through acquiring this true will and living according to it, one could, in fact, become divine or take part in some divinity through a mystical absorption. So a sort of surrender of the self, a complete unification of the self with everything else. God, the universe, Crowley himself gives multiple options. So that is where Crowley becomes a little unoriginal because these ideas about mystical absorption, becoming one with God are as, you know, I want to say as old as time, but definitely thousands of years old. So it's not entirely unique as an ideal philosophy. The goal points are easily recognizable in other cultures. I'm thinking of Buddhism. I'm even thinking of Catholic mysticism. And he mm. himself makes those connections himself. It isn't a unique system, but the way it guides the individual, the way it it. Um, supports the individual is the best way to go about it that's i think how crowley understood it because he himself recognized and even explicitly acknowledged that you could find the same enlightenment in other religious systems as well he straight up admitted that all legitimate religion and mysticism leads to the same final experience But that doesn't mean they have the best technique. And Crowley believed he did have those techniques, even though the goal was essentially the same. So that's the interesting paradoxical tension, is that he makes this big claim of there's this new age and a new religion, but it's really all the same thing. (laughs) So that is the puzzle that you have to piece together as a scholar. So why is he saying this and why is he saying that the next page? But the most important point Crowley kept emphasizing is that without this true will, one is fundamentally destined to not just be unhappy, but also to miss out on a an accurate um, coexistence with reality itself. So for Crowley, this was extremely urgent mm. and that if humanity was to progress any further, these are the steps one has to take. And, you know, the sooner the better.
0: Right. Did Crowley use the concept of initiation in his group?
1: Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, was but it the, he did
0: was it the revolutionize same? it. Okay.
1: Oh, Yes, yeah. it was completely, completely different. He borrowed a lot of the symbolism and the terminology from the Golden Dawn, which is interesting, because even though he had been completely disillusioned, he still seems to have been convinced that they got a lot of things right but it was just that the group had fallen prey to human ambition and corruption, but that essentially it was a good system, and he borrowed a lot of it. But what he did discard, and this is so central to my research, is he did, he no longer believed it had to be a group setting. He didn't believe initiation had to be a group-based practice. And you know, to make a comparison in The Golden Dawn, it was really more of a stress on you need an initiator. You need someone who has gone through the whole process. You need someone who has literally the magical power to confer initiation upon you. And now Crowley is saying, that's how it can be done, but it can also be done in many other ways because I did it, you know? And of course, that's the ongoing debate in the occultist community. (laughs) Did he really do it or did he just imagine he was progressing on this initiatory path? claiming all these titles for himself that are really not official. But Crowley believed this was uh, entirely possible. With Crowley, initiation really becomes a psychological experience more than anything else. You can get the highest grade possible, but that doesn't mean you, you you have obtained the spiritual value of that grade. And vice versa, you may have no title at all, in any system, but you may have still progressed to the farthest point of spirituality possible. So Crowley relativizes this whole insistence on getting a certain grade and, and um, meeting people and making it basically a social thing. He, in one of his letters to his students, he actually berates one of his um, followers for always wanting to meet other occultists. And he says, You know, why do you want magic to be a tea party? You know, uh, (laughs) what are you going to do there? You know, you have to do the work. That's the most important. And anything that can come of people sitting around practicing magic together is what he calls you start criticizing people's hats. You know, you're just engaging in this futile, gossipy culture that really isn't beneficial to magical practice, which in the end is an individual, arduous journey that can only be confirmed by spiritual experience. So in a way, you can say Crowley freed initiation from a specific order-based system. Even though he had his own group, um, he didn't claim initiation exclusively anymore. It was perfectly possible all around the world, even if you've never been a member of my organization, as long as you had this set of experiences, you are initiate
0: so he ga- some- he gives the the potential member kind of a toolkit with with the book of the law and with other writings that he had then in the meantime written about you know what yes. this what this is all about and the mm-hmm. the principles the ideas concepts and all of that but he just kind of hands it to the person and says here you go now it's up to you to initiate yourself is that kind of how it worked or is that too simplistic
1: well uh, yes and no it's a difficult question because what he writes to his students and this is why i focus so much on his letters because they offer really practical advice Uh whereas in his other texts he Yeah, he is more of that prophetic figure of, hey, my—because this is what he claims, that his organization is ancient and spread all over the world, and that his organization actually sent out Jesus and Muhammad, and and that it is guarding the whole fate of humanity. But then in his letters to his students, he focuses a lot more on— Just do the practices and and I can help you with certain stuff, other stuff you need to do alone, but, you know, don't focus on all of that other stuff. You know, this is your journey and it might look completely different than mine and we may completely disagree about certain aspects, but yeah, my only purpose as a teacher is to give you the tools to free yourself. Okay. So yeah it, it, it's difficult because uh, he was able to perform initiations and and, and he did mm-hmm. but he seems absolutely convinced that one can do without a teacher that there are certain spiritual forces within oneself or you know without oneself like like a guardian angel or you know like a hidden brotherhood of initiates that will help a person if they're worthy, no matter if they are part of an official organization or not.
0: So could we could we say then in this case that, like you were talking about before, that Crowley was kind of fulfilling different roles given the situation, that in this case he's doing the same thing? Because, I mean, it, he's not the only one who, who claimed to be an ancient uh, system that was around before anything else. I mean, a lot of these quote-unquote yes. occult, quote-unquote esoteric Uh, groups were making these claims at this time as well. And that was more of a form of legitimization that, you know, Mm -hmm. this makes us serious and important and we're not just some bunch of crazies. And, you know, this is, but that, I mean, they were struggling with that at that time that a lot of people were saying, well, where did this come from all of a sudden, you know, especially for, for Westerners who have this sense of a, Established tradition of a church, and then you have yeah. all of these like mushrooms popping up everywhere. You know, <laughs> for for just a general person, they might think, "Uh, well, you know, where did you come from? This this is just a bunch of bunk." So it yes. seemed like that. I mean, that's what we you know we talked about that quite often about how uh, organizations seem to feel the need to make those types of claims, that they were grounded in some kind of ancient tradition.
1: Yes, absolutely. Crowley is a particularly interesting example of that because he switches style so many times mm -hmm. and around the same time. You you can find writings of the same year where he adopts a completely different style of talking about legitimacy. But yeah, I devoted an entire section um, in my research master's thesis to this problem In Crowley, this insistence on on presenting his system as ancient, as as the one great initiation, while at the same time he is claiming legitimacy for completely different reasons. Um, One of my favorite quotations is, in fact, I have it here somewhere um, from his autobiography as well, that the only reason he became successful in magic in the first place is because he studied is because he had a scientific background is because he was able to um really determine the exact necessities for spiritual progress in a very technical scientific way so you know in one page he could say um my brotherhood is ancient and that's why you should join and in another passage he can say yeah okay there are a bunch of brotherhoods out there but I'm the one who has found the best techniques based on my own per- personal experience, based on my own intellect, you know, because of my personal studies. So, this is a completely different statement. Because of my own personal studies, I can now present you a system that is complete, accurate, and will not fail. So, yeah, in one case, it's a tradition, in another case, it's his invention. And he constantly switches between these two, like you said, because he clearly feels the need to put his system out there in any way that will convince anyone that it is worthwhile. And like you said, every occultist is doing it some way, and Crowley is doing it in every way he can, absolutely.
0: You mentioned the the scientific uh, aspect uh, that, he, that he often touched upon as well, and that was, uh, a, yet again, another thing that... Uh, esotericists and occultists were, uh, trying to find some kind of, um, legitimacy. And mm-hmm. because science was such, you know, the major thing at that time, uh, you yes. know, religion was suffering because God was dead in their opinion. Yeah. And science was the new, the science was basically the new religion in a way, <laughs> because yeah. it had, all of the answers, you could prove things. And that's what, in this case, it sounds like what Crowley is trying to say is that I can prove this works to you. And that's what makes it scientific. Is that how I'm supposed to be reading this? Or that empirically speaking, we can prove that this is true and this is real and this is not just some kind of fantasy that uh, I've come up with?
1: Right. I think he didn't believe that it was possible right now to prove empirically, mm-hmm. but that it would be possible in the future, probably, and that this is something he would support. You know, part of his whole career is his pride in equating all of these different religious systems and finding out that there is such commonality between the spiritual experiences they offer and that, you know, we should compare them and we should distill the essence of them in their most pure form and Hopefully without any cultural biases and without any, um, any additional material that isn't really necessary, like um, myths and stories and you know symbols that are interpreted dogmatically. He wanted to do away with all of that. So that in itself is a very scientifically-esque approach to religion. Like, let's just get the good stuff and throw the rest of the stuff out and that is absolutely why he believed his system was the best because he wasn't an idiot you know he wasn't a dogmatist who believed that you know god was the almighty father or whatever but then again that is contradicted by his other more religious statements where he actually yeah. says and with no sense of irony the gods have chosen me and my whole life is predestined so it it's incredibly confusing
0: for me paradox. as a
1: researcher <laughs> <laughs> it's really different voices and i think the most complete conclusion i can make about that is that he was just trying to get everyone into the fold mm-hmm. and satisfy both religious seekers and people who were interested in more the the truth behind all of the religious symbolism because he he knew those desires he was a religious seeker and I think that's a side of him that a lot of people don't really know but he also knew that religion was extremely flawed and that there was a lot of dogma and superstition and that science offered a way to handle religion more safely you know one of his big mottos is you know the aim of the religion the method of science that was the motto he adopted for his 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 journal his magical journal which which has a very scientific aura around it like oh this is the most accurate system so far um but then again it is completely filled with religious language so it's this constant mismatch of different styles that makes Crowley's literature so unique he doesn't decide on one thing. It seems like he wants his students to be both passionate religious people and skeptical, critical scientists at the same time, so that some kind of higher union can occur by combining these two Mm, approaches.
0: Interesting. So these uh, magical rituals, we've kind of skirted around this uh, concept of magic and and practices and things like that. Can you give an example of uh well no, I guess my first question is, did he write books about the actual magical spells that you would I don't know if spells is the right word, but how did he term the practices? Your magical workings, magical how did he how did he call that? And did he write books about this? Like listing out first you do this then you do that and then you call mm-hmm. upon this spirit and then you draw whatever and i mean did did he Great list question. did he list that type of thing for his for his students
1: i want to say yes and no i think it's really important at this time to point out that when he was writing there was almost no information about that from 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 this genre of magicians i would say Crowley revealed a lot of material he published initiation ceremonies from the Golden Dawn which is extremely controversial because this was supposed to be secret information and he believed no I'm just going to publish it and um but it, it's never quite sure if he really trusts people with this information because mm-hmm. you know other occultist colleagues of him like Israel Lagardi, have pointed out that the rituals he did publish were either completely unusable or they were forged you know, he tampered with them so that they wouldn't work. So I, I always thought that was an incredibly interesting remark of Rigardi, who was a lot more forthcoming. But again, you know, this is decades later. So I think in the environment Crowley was living in, he wanted very much to attract people to these rituals, but he didn't want to give out the keys. He, you know, he writes some books collecting Magical rituals, but you know these are more collections of invocations rather than first you do this and now you make the circle. It's it's extremely difficult to put together a magical system based on Crowley's suggested practices. You would have to have an incredible creativity and an incredible willpower to take Crowley's suggestions and make one ritual. Okay, maybe you can do like an extremely simple one, but. Yeah, that's an interesting paradox that, you know, you really cannot practice magic in a good way based on Crowley's books alone. After Crowley, there have been much more clear, much more extensive, much more hands-on manuals of magic. But he, I think he kind of wanted to test his audience because he didn't have those materials available to him during his life. And I think this is so typical of Crowley. He duplicates a lot of his personal experience for his students. He goes through you know, a certain series of events, certain spiritual experiences, and he automatically seems to believe that then this must be the case for everyone else. If I didn't have magic manuals telling me what to do, then people must be able to do it without them as well. And maybe I'll give a few handy tips, but if they don't show the willpower to do it on their own, then they probably shouldn't be practicing magic at all. So he is not that forthcoming. So, you would have to okay. spend a massive amount of time reading tons of other materials than crowley um to really perform magic without his personal instruction,
0: okay, that's that last bit that you said that's the important part so he was he was actually practicing magic and and doing rituals, but only with a few people, correct. He had a certain amount of disciples that he yes. would practice these rituals with. All right. I'd like to ask actually, uh, what is known about, uh, his small group of disciples and what they were doing hands on, I guess, the practical matters of things. Um, if you, if, if there's anything that you can talk about, uh, with regards to that, uh, I know you, you've stated that there, it's very difficult to know exactly what was going on. Um, but, if you could talk more about this, if there if 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 you know more about this, I think it might be interesting to uh, spend a little bit of time on uh, what he was actually doing with the small group of disciples that he had. If I recall correctly, he went to Italy with them. So uh, could you talk about what happened there uh, and why they left, and anything else you that you find uh, relevant?
1: Okay, interesting question. Um, first of all, I would have to say that Crowley was running his own personal initiatory society, um, the AA. Those are two letters with a lot of mysterious um, fillings. There's multiple interpretations. You know, there's astron argon. There's all of these different. From what I know, there's no. There's no consensus about this, even in the occultist community, so I'm just going to call it the AA, even okay. though that's probably reminding people of, an, of another well-known group. Yes. But this was uh, an organization formed in 1907 by Crowley and George Cecil Jones, who was a chemist and a member of the Golden Dawn, and he's actually the person who invited Crowley to the Golden Dawn. So he had this organization running, and he, he was mainly accepting students through this body, so it was in that sense, like an an official circle of students. Um, That organization basically copied the structure of the Golden Dawn, except that it had an even bigger final stage um, to pass through more initiatory grades and stuff. But what one would first do when becoming Crowley's student so to speak is Mm -hmm. really a massive amount of theoretical instruction and I think this is something that is worth pointing out um, because maybe people assume that you immediately jump into these magical rituals or something. Crowley's also known for sexual styles of, of magic so maybe people have the idea that that he would sort of like hypnotize you into doing all of this weird stuff. But in reality, Crowley really wanted people to first spend weeks, if not months, studying all of these different books that he found valuable to have a solid theoretical foundation and to be clever and smart and informed about what magic was. So I think that scared off a huge amount of people from the get-go because I think most people are actually interested to immediately jump into these magical rituals and, and maybe the idea of sexual magic is really attractive to people at this point of his life. He wasn't exactly doing that yet, but point is, um, you would basically get a massive list of books, which you had to buy though. Crowley was very willing to send copies if he had these himself and you would have to study like you were at university Oh, okay. And only when you passed an examination, there was actually an examination about all of this theoretical material. Only then did you become like a full member of the order, I should say. And this okay. is when the student slowly starts to practice actual magical techniques, meditative techniques, yogic techniques basically a a compendium of everything that Crowley had found valuable in his spiritual career from his golden dawn days up to the present, because there was no yoga in the golden dawn, for example. Right. So, um, yeah, it wasn't until 1909 that the organization took on real students. This is also when he starts to publish the equinox. this sort of journal, which was sold publicly, Mm. which incorporated all of the, Thelema-related texts that the student also had to master, and it contains some of the experiments and techniques, and this is basically our main source about what the group did. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very easy to find online, so I think it's worth to just type it in in Google and take a look because it's, mm-hmm. it's very special in character. It's very serious, and it's very... Um, brave, dramatic language, and at the same time, very strict and constantly saying, you know, you should make notes, and you should keep a diary, and you should record all of, all of the things that you do, all of your little experiments, even if it's just one meditation. You should write down everything that happened, um, what the temperature in the room was like, what did you eat, um, what, what, what did you find? So, you know, we're talking about a group of students that was really serious about doing this, and we're willing to do all of that extra work to then ultimately practice magic. So this is something that could have easily taken years before you would do anything spectacular, so to speak.
0: I see. But, okay. Yeah. If, just for clarification, the AA group that you were talking about just now, yes. is that uh, equatable with Thelema or are these two <laughs> different Good things?
1: Question. The AA was supposedly the organization which embodied Thelema. So it embodied everything that was new and unique about Thelema in comparison to other occultist societies, which did exist. Um, But of course, at the same time, Crowley claimed that the AA was also the only legitimate real Mm. occultist organization. So yeah, there's this uh, tender balance between... Okay. how he presented the AA as an, an order that ha- had already existed for thousands of years. Oh, well, right. you know, he founded Tradition. it in 1907. So okay. it's this typical Crowley paradox. There. Okay.
0: I just wanted to uh, clarify that. Cause I yeah. thought that might be a little confusion there for the listeners. Uh, but please sure. continue about the group uh,
1: itself. Yeah. So this was mainly a group of students um, working in London. Um, so they had some communal activities, though, you know, I should mention for Crowley, this was not necessarily a group effort. It, you know, the organization didn't have like, uh, like, uh, like an address, like an office. Um, it was very much designed so that students could work on their own and have very minimal social interaction with other members. And this is kind of a reflection of, the, you know, this pessimistic outcome Crowley experienced after he left the Golden Dawn, he really believed that if occultists spend too much time together, they start ripping each other apart and, and they mm. start tainting the work. And, and, you know, people are too egocentric and, and selfish and impure. So it's best if you just work alone, like he did, of course. So this is basically Crowley replicating how he achieved the spiritual success he believed he had attained. So there was some communal activity, but I do want to point out that the vast majority of the, the work that the students were doing were uh, you know, that this was solitary and this was known. This was, you know, this was Crowley's vision. So all of these students were okay with that. They were, Crowley was basically looking for people who would who were willing to do what he had done to work by themselves as hard as they could with some supervision, but also with individual insight individual creativity um who didn't have to be treated as like babies you know Mm -hmm. they you had to be able to figure out your own magical system in a way while of course following all of the the rules that Crowley had laid down but it's interesting to note that in 1909 those were the first year that this AA started publicly accepting members um 16 people signed up so you know, Sixteen? Six zero? Sixteen. Oh, 16, six. Okay. Yes. That was the first year and around 30 the year later. And th- th- this was probably the, the high point of the mm-hmm. AA. So, you know, this wasn't a, a body that attracted hundreds or thousands of students. Um, and if people are really interested in in Learning about um, these members, they're fairly easy to find online. We don't know the identity of all of the members, but because of the documents that we do have, because everything was, you know, officially noted, mm-hmm. so we have some documents. So um, I think the most well-known member that maybe people listening to this podcast would know is Austin Osman Spare. He was um, also an occultist, yes. did very well in the order for a short while, but eventually there were some disagreements about um, philosophies of magic and he left, but that is probably the most well-known member.
0: And he is, he is most well-known nowadays, I would say for chaos magic, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, So this was mostly taking place in London, but still through the years membership became very international. I think Crowley was very excited about this, that people were coming you know, with an Australian background, with a South African background, who lived in America, and who could um, take the system that he had built overseas. Um, and of course, if you reached a certain point in the initiatory structure, this was actually quite fast, you could also initiate members yourself. So this didn't always have to happen in this big communal setting, like the original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Initiations could be, you know, an individual thing, or it could be something that you know you would just do with your supervisor. Um, so in that sense, it was quite spontaneous. And the reason I say it's the high point 1909 and 1910 is because you know, the well-known public scandals erupted shortly afterwards, and this really scared people off because more and more throughout the years, Crowley became known as you know, a pervert, a sadist, a dangerous person and even though he still kept accepting members and members still showed up, um, wasn't as big a number as, as happened early on when Crowley still had like a decent reputation, I should, I should say.
0: So what were the public scandals? Can you just briefly talk about that or talk about one? (laughs) If there's one that's kind of stands out?
1: Yes, there absolutely is one. And that has to do with Italy. So it's actually a nice segue into your second question. Um, yeah, Crowley ended up in Italy around um, 1911, I believe, after a series of interactions with a supposedly spiritual entity, supposedly called Abuldiz, who informed Crowley that he and his, one of his students, uh, Mary Dest uh, Sturge, had to travel to Italy, rent a villa there, and you know, basically that a villa was waiting for him, that it, that, that it was ready for him to do some kind of work there. And Crowley believed he had found this villa near Naples. It's quite an interesting story because there are this spirit supposedly gives very specific descriptions of you know you will recognize the villa by this and this and this. and you know Crowley and, and Mary believed, oh yeah, this is the house because you know you have the trees there and it has these colors and stuff. So they um, set up a home there and they started writing one of his most famous works, Book Four or Magic. So that's sort of the first um, uh, the first Italy connection. but what really um, became the most well-known international location of Curley's life is the Abbey of Thelema, which was in in Seifelu in in Sicily. Mm-hmm. a legendary location. Tied to the AA, people still visit it. Um, you know, there's lots oh. of YouTube videos <laughs> yes. of people. Kind of, I mean, not breaking in because it, it's you know nobody lives there anymore. Mm-hmm. But there's tons of graffiti there, and right. it's it's a very interesting place for people. And that has to do with all of the the, the scandals mm-hmm. that emerged around it. But in the beginning, this this abbey was really supposed to be um, like a like a global. This is how Crowley imagined it. He wanted people to come from all over the world to devote themselves to the great work, to initiation, to their own spiritual evolution. And even though it was intimately tied to the AA, um, it didn't accept just AA members. Um, So it wasn't like an AA building or something. You actually have various people who come in and become AA members while they're there. So that's maybe something people don't know. You have Mm -hmm. anyone who's basically free to go there if they had the right motivation. Um, For example, um, Raoul Loveday became a member during his retreat. He founded this location in 1920 as an abbey. And yeah, it became a very notorious place because of rumors, which, You know, some completely untrue, some exaggerated, yet true of a lot of sexual, drug-related, excessive activity in the villa after one of Crowley's acquaintances he had insulted, basically wanted to destroy his reputation and sold a bunch of exaggerations and lies to the Sunday Express English newspaper Mm -hmm. uh, about all of this sexual depravity that was going on, and that caused a massive scandal in England. It was front-page news. So he was really talked about in the public eye. And that location became very suspicious. Even though people were still coming in, you know, these were people that Crowley mm-hmm. knew very well. And, mm-hmm. you know, students who basically knew that that was just a bunch of sensationalist crap. But the the, the second um, hit came when Raoul Loveday, who I actually just mentioned coincidentally, died there um, due to what, most people now assume was, you know, water contamination. But what became the frontline news was that he died because he drank too much sacrificed cat blood.
0: Oh dear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This controversy exploded and it eventually sort of, yeah, the the, the scandal spread to Italy itself and Crowley was essentially expelled from Italy. Uh And the remaining members carried on the program for several years and Crowley tried his hardest to allow them to pay the rent, so he didn't just abandon this place. Um, but yeah, around um, 1923, um, Jane Wolfe, one of Crowley's most famous students, um, left there. So, and ever since it, it has been empty and, and empty and controversial. But in reality, it's a very interesting place. For it must have been a very special place f- for the students who wanted to be there. And that's something that shines through all of the testimonies that despite all of this public sensationalism for the majority of members, it was really a place of peace, quiet where they could just really devote themselves to their own individual journey um, with like-minded people surrounded by nature and really just have this spiritual retreat that was available for them. So it's interesting to balance the, the rumors with, Mm. you know, this place was actually really special for a lot of people.
0: So it was influential, but also infamous in the eyes of yes, the absolutely. public who didn't really know what was going on at this location. Yeah, it,
1: it's, it's kind of reflected curiously in why people visit now. You know, you have a group of people who visit because they care about what Crowley was doing, and there are people who are interested in, in Crowley, and, you know, supposedly there's this very strong magical power that maybe is still living there, mm. but then you have other people who really just want to go in there because they believe it's it's like a diabolical right. place yeah. where Haunted. they summon spirits, and, so, you know, usually there's, um, you know, there's pictures of, of like, remnants of little, um, like, probably Goisha board summonings going on over there, mm. so that place kind of it's both a remnant of Crowley's biggest dream, which is, for some people, almost makes it like a holy site. Mm. But then at the same time, for a lot of other people, it's the place of all evil. So it's, it's a very interesting contrast.
0: Right. It, it is considered quite frightening uh, in that there are, uh, I guess you could call them frescoes uh, on the yeah. walls that mm-hmm. are a bit... Um, I I would say it's not just a, a pastoral uh, types of uh, <laughs> pictures that you see, but they're mm-hmm. they're rather uh, shocking images that are that yes. are painted on the walls, and that can perhaps be seen as frightening images. And now that Absolutely. they're kind of crumbled down a little bits, so that it kind of adds to that spooky atmosphere of oh this is yeah. an evil place and and yeah so okay well that's very interesting so i have one other question that might seem to be random but uh in this case with regards to what you know crowley has written about i noticed that the number 93 is is talked about a lot with yes uh within why is this number so important what does it mean
1: well it relates to my birth here in 1993 <laughs> um no it just although i always found that an interesting uh, connection but um no it has to um it has a very specific meaning um might be a little less spectacular than people want it to be. I don't know, but it, it has to do with um it has to do with numbers. It has to do with turning letters into numbers and vice versa. So Crowley called this um gematria, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was an existing term. He didn't make that up. Right. This is a term that is that is hundreds of years old mm-hmm. that um, you know this is mostly connected to the Kabbalah, which is a Jewish system of learning. We probably won't go into that. But the, the basic point is that Crowley believed amazing magical insights could be gained by, um, you know, translating, as it were, words to their numerical values mm-hmm. or so letters each, to their numerical values.
0: Each letter had then a numerical value. Yes. As in uh, the uh, Jewish texts as well. Each letter yeah, had and- a, has a numerical value. And then you can make calculations out of these letters.
1: Yes. Correct. Uh, And in fact, it also existed, and it was also an ancient Greek system. Yeah. So. um, It's a very
0: old concept.
1: Yes. And these numerical values were out there. He didn't have to invent them for himself. You know, this is a typical trope of, you know, this was taught in the Golden Dawn, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these technicalities aside, um, Crowley kept insisting up to the end of his life that even though it seemed completely random he was aware of this that he he kind of prevents his students from rolling their eyes and thinking oh my god what is he you know what is he suggesting now he keeps insisting that he has gained some of the most massive life changing insights from engaging in a continuous practice of doing this even in his daily life you know he, he describes this um, exercise where he would just walk out of his door, and 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 every object he sort of took an interest in, he took the word, translated into numerical values, and and just sort of saw what happened. And you know, he that's that remained a, a central magical, pr- even though it doesn't seem very magical for him, it was one of the most important ones. So ninety three is the numerical value of Thelema itself when written in a certain Greek style. Mm-hmm. And it is also the value of agape, which is Greek for love. And the whole motto of Thelema is love is the law, love under will, which is sort of an extension of, of, of the complete motto, which is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. So I'm guessing the meaning is probably a lot more manifold than I can piece it together because Crowley loves like these massive amounts of hidden layers so there's probably a magical technical explanation as well but the most easy to understand explanation which he himself presents is that love is truly a divine cosmically unifying all-pervading force which is essentially what the magician wishes to achieve within themselves permanently and that this can only arise properly when the individual is living according to their true will So love is the law of the entire universe, but only if the law is respected, meaning the individual has to be performing their will for love to become manifest. So even though they are one and the same, it is only through the application of the will that love manages to triumph. So again, very paradoxically, Mm -hmm. very typical Crowley. So it is kind of a maze of words, but the fact that Thalema or will and love have the same numerical value was one of the proofs Crowley found within the text so this is one of the elements he said you know this kind of shows that um, this text is legitimate has some has some genuine meaning that there is this connection between will and love mm. and um it also just makes for a handy way to write the whole motto every single time because, you know, we have communications where Crowley just writes 93, 93 slash 93, which is basically, you know, 93, yeah do what that will, there's a whole mm-hmm. of the law. And then 93 and, and the, the third 93 are written on top of each other to say the same thing you know, love, under, the will, fellow which fellow have fellow. the same value. Right. So it basically sums up the entire message of Thalema without using a single word. So for Crowley, yeah, that's just a typical sort of trick to use, which nevertheless has amazing significance for his students and for himself.
0: Right, and even to this day, people will uh, will greet each other with, with 93, correct? Is that, or is that just... Yes, yeah, if you... A- I thought yeah, I, heard, you know online people would just write ninety three and then people would know oh i i i I get you, I know what you I know I know who you are I know
1: yeah, like that. Know. I've even seen um leading leaning forums where every single post is uh, it ends with with those words, so it's something that you almost have to say every time you say anything at all or write anything at all. It's always in the spirit of this message, so because that's it's so very early
0: it's very important yeah okay right
1: everything you do needs to be in this spirit so i think it it um, it functions as a kind of constant reminder that Mm. this is the goal this is what we're trying to achieve and it uh, because it's so short and because numbers have such a mythical mystical aura around them i think it has instant appeal for thelemites because it yeah, it, you know, it creates a certain vibration that I think they enjoy without constantly having to go through the entire motto or the entire book of the law. Um, for them, it, it symbolizes that whole message in just, you know, six characters.
0: All right. Well, thanks for that. I liked that <laughs> uh, explanation. Please join us for part two where Thomas will be discussing his own research findings about the concept of the abyss, which is very interesting, some major conceptions about Crowley and Crowley's influence on popular culture.